Hello, clinicians, and hello, my peers. We are back for another episode of the Becoming Healers podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and life to stay tuned to the season. I truly hope it's been adding immense value that you have been learning, that you have been empowered with resources around where you can seek help for your personal mental health journeys and experiences that you now understand and are starting to define the normalcy for yourself and the abnormalcy when it exists in terms of what your mental health cascade looks like and that you're being empowered with vocabulary to navigate this on a personal level but then also for yourself as a part of a healthcare ecosystem. We are thoroughly enjoying these conversations, myself and all of my co-hosts, and today's conversation will be no different. I'm going to be doing a one-on-one with Dr. Sam Gengobo just to explore this idea of normally I'm human and really starting to humanize the healthcare professional and the experiences that we can have as healthcare professionals in healthcare context. Dr. Ngobo is going to spend some time just unpacking a little bit about how her story ensued and some of the challenges she had to navigate as a patient. But then we're going to turn around and focus on what it looks like for you to empower yourself in the healthcare context. So I'm excited for you to hear this. As usual, I want to send a special shout out to everybody who has been sharing this podcast. If you find that this episode serves you, please go ahead and share the podcast so that you have a community of people who are like-minded because they're hearing the same things and they're being exposed to the same concepts. And you can have deeper conversations with your peers and friends around the challenges that we're expressing. And if you want to add to the conversation, please reach out to us on social media. Don't forget to like and um, to rate our podcast on the social media platforms or the podcast platforms rather that you listen in on. That's everything from Spotify to Apple Podcasts. This makes sure that this podcast is heard and seen when searched for, makes us go up in the algorithm because then it starts to show that this is adding value. So if we serve you in those ways, please do likewise and rate our podcast. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Do enjoy. Thank you so much, Dr. Ngo, for joining us yet again. Today, it's just you and I having a bit of an intimate conversation. We couldn't be joined by our seasoned co-host today, but I trust that we're going to have an equally fruitful conversation because there's just still so much to unpack post our last conversation. When you gave us insights about, you know, where your journey started and what you've been able to accomplish from journey from being a student who's just learning what it means to have a, a personal mental health condition evolving to becoming a doctor and then empowering people in your day-to-day to the platforms that you work with. And I'm hoping today we can have a conversation just to expand on this idea of being human and how as healthcare workers we are often very I wouldn't say dehumanized, but removed from the human ha- human aspects of ourselves because of, you know, the, the pressure that we experience in the profession. I think it's a theme that's been laced throughout the season, but I do believe that you have value to add in this conversation because of the personal experiences that you've had, particularly as a mental health care user, as per the definition. I think more than more and more, all of us <laughs> in the world are becoming mental health care users because we're also challenged with our mental health and personal mental health strategies. So maybe just to kick off the conversation, can you just 
take us through a moment when you were challenged by your experience of how people navigated you being a doctor who has a mental health issue and how you felt dehumanized by that experience and maybe also allude to, you know, what the rights are that exist for people in those situations so that if we have listeners who are currently in those situations, they know what to expect from their peers in those contexts. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for having me back. I thoroughly enjoyed our session with V last week and I'm glad to be back. Yes, there's fewer of us, but I believe that the conversation is just flowing from what it's meant to be. So I had my turning point related to my mental health and mental illness last year when I had a very public relapse. And at the time I had also other constraints, which led me from enjoying the luxury of private healthcare for most of my life, actually my entire life up until that point, to finding myself in a state facility. I had worked in the public sector, in mental health, in the psychiatry department, but I'd never been in the shoes of the patient who's behind the gate. And what, what, one of the things that was a reality is it's one thing to actually be the doctor who's managing a patient in that space and an environment, mm. and then to be in those shoes. It's quite private. Um, I became more conscientized and more aware of it more than ever when I became a patient who's in a state facility. I can mm. say it was one of, one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, among the most traumatic, but one of the uh, most amazing ones because I wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for those very unfortunate uh, circumstances. I remember while I was in that state hospital saying to myself that advocacy and activism is going to be in my life's calling because I don't want the things that I went through to happen to the next person. Oftentimes right. we read it theoretically. We read the mental health act theoretically and we apply it as well to know that, okay, there's the voluntary admission the assisted admission, mm. the involuntary admission, up until you are the patient who is an involuntary patient or up until you're that oh. assisted patient according to the Mental Health Care Act, then it becomes very real. And when mm. I was there, obviously I came at a time when I was, I was manic and psychotic. So I was very unwell when I arrived at the hospital. Mm. But as time moved on, I was moved to another ward that was supposed to afford me more freedom because of the fact that I was now becoming better and getting better from the state that I'd come in whilst unwell. And with that came that awareness of, you know, things because I've worked in a psychiatry department, I was aware of things and how they should be done basically. Right. And I think I felt victimized for the fact that they know I'm a medical doctor. And mm. I do feel that there was a level of being punitive for the fact that I was a medical doctor. So I'd question things. Why am I still written as an involuntary mental health care user if I'm in a mobile ward supposed to be assisted? So those questions were not expected. They've never had to deal with such things. Maybe they've never had to deal with the patient who questions in that manner. So the more I questioned, the more it frustrated them, the more I became frustrated because it seemed like I was being unruly and demanding. And I was genuinely asking those questions. So it's the ability to separate between a patient is manic, but they don't lose their sense of autonomy and their rights. And I felt that my autonomy was a threat. I felt that my autonomy and my vocalness was a threat when it shouldn't, when it shouldn't have been. And I'm just grateful that during my time in the psychiatry department, I did see things being done while where I used to work. And that's why I was so aware of my rights. That, that is why I had that awareness because I knew how strict they were with, in terms of the forms that needed to be completed. Hence, when I found myself in that position, I could tell when things weren't being done in that manner. So I found mm-hmm. that 
the, the occupational therapy program was not stimulating at all. It was, you know, sometimes, oftentimes people do things to, to tick a tick box. We have this right. service, but it's not actually paid attention to, to make it worthwhile for patients. So here mm-hmm. I was having to recite the date, the day of the week, the weather, who's in charge of the hospital, who's in charge of the ward every single day. That's what our homework was. That's what we had to do every morning after breakfast. And I thought this is so unstimulating, wow. you know? And one of the things that I had an issue with was the, the status of my admission, because I knew that for the level at which I was in terms of the, 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 the hospital environment, the ward I was now in, that status should have been changed. And I've often been told that when you have a mental health care user, you need to afford them the, as much freedom as possible because when you apply certain rules and rights and regulations to them, you are actually hindering their rights. So if you're saying a patient is involuntary, they need to satisfy the criteria to be an involuntary patient. Up until right. you're in that position, you won't know this until you feel that your rights are being hindered. I do understand that when I was unwell and psychotic, I should have been involuntary. But by the time I was in a, a ward where I could walk around, my status should have been changed. And they couldn't answer those questions when I asked, why am I still involuntary when I'm in an, when I should be an assisted patient? But then the thing is, they could still apply whatever rules they had. And it was a very humbling experience, very painful experience, but it made me so resolute that people need to be aware of their rights as mental health care users and people who manage people with mental health care issues and mental illnesses need to have greater level of empathy and see them as people and not just as a patient who's on their list of people to attend to. So it was that, that's what made me more sensitized to the mental health care act because I found myself having my rights being threatened to some extent. Sure. That is so full. And I, I definitely have a question for you after what you've just said, but I also just want to comment and say, I think, What's making this episode so valuable is because we're vacillating between the experiences that any clinician could have at any given time. You know, you could be the clinician on the other side, admitting this patient, or you could be the one in the room needing the treatment. And our goal in this conversation today is really to empower both, is if you find yourself in that position, what are your rights to be aware of them? And if you find yourself on the other side, that doesn't mean you're immune to mental health struggle. And what does that look like to empower you? So I want you guys to be encouraged and take this conversational journey with us because I think there's so much to glean on and from. And so that helps me lean into my next question, which is you alluded so much to the rights of a patient in that situation. Are you able to touch on a few of them that you think people aren't necessarily aware of that can change their experience if they find themselves admitted for care in a mental health context? I think one of the greatest things for me uh, that applied to me during the time I was admitted last year was for the awareness of the type of admissions that are available, where you can either be a voluntary mental health care user, assisted mental health care user, or an involuntary mental health care user. And that depends on the severity of how you present as you would have the insight to say you're a voluntary mental health care user. So at that point, you're not necessarily posing a danger to other people or yourself. You have volunteered to go forward and see um, or pursue the help. You're going according to your own rights and your own assessment. Assisted is when you pose a danger to yourself and other people, and you might not have the insight to decide on 
for yourself. Therefore, people have to decide on your behalf. So you sort of lose that right to decide because you may be lacking the insight. And involuntary is when you actually are a danger to other people and to yourself. So that's when you'd be written as an, and uh, that's often people who are maybe psychotic or patients mm. who are suicidal, where you're actually a danger now to yourself and other people. So for me, I knew the, the set of forms that need to be completed when I was admitting a patient. I was well aware. Right, right. So up until now, I'm that patient who's now involuntary. Up until now, I was the patient who's assisted. And mm. obviously I was not voluntary because I was not well enough because that would mean I could walk out and leave. Right. So I think it's very important for people to acquaint themselves, not just in reading it and just filling out forms in general. Oftentimes we follow procedure and not sometimes engage with what we're doing and to have that awareness to understand that when we're seeing patients, let us have that empathy to realize that we're just not just filling out papers and writing patient details and saying that they are involuntary. Realize that, by saying whatever status you're giving them, there's a level of taking away their rights and freedom and put mm. yourself in their shoes and realize the implications of whatever you're deciding and to take those things seriously. What did it take for you to come out of that and start to heal some of the experiences you you had as a result of your colleagues. And I think this is an important conversation, not just in the context of being a mental health care user, but in the context of our conversation in this whole season, which is we often are each other's pain points and that might not be intentional, but it is true. So how did you navigate it? Cause I mean, it's not like you may never bump into these colleagues one day or may never not be to refer to them one day <laughs> yeah. because that's just life, right? There's so mm. few of us and we all need each other. But so what was that journey like for you and, and what did it take to reframe your mind to come back to respecting the profession and being a part of it, even though those were your experiences? Sure, Dr. Kaitle, it was grueling. It was painful. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of resentment I had to overcome. I'm in a place, I'm in a very healthy and happy and forgiving place now, but it was not a glamorous journey at all. One mm. of the greatest disappointments when I was admitted at the particular state hospital was that people within the profession who were my friends, who I did not tell about my anything related to my admission, knew everything. They knew who was managing me. So that sense sure. of privacy and dignity and oftentimes mm. in our profession, we are guilty of that, that by virtue of us all being doctors, you sort of share someone's information. So imagine now, being in a position where people are doctors and you know, the, the, the profession is small, as you just said, and then a fellow yeah. colleague is there. You may be sharing the information, but that sense of privacy and autonomy, I still deserve the, the confidentiality as any other patient, but it wasn't the case. And I was so shocked when people would call me post my admission and say, Oh no, so, so such a lovely doctor. You're, I thought, but I didn't tell her who my managing team was. So who did tell her? Mm. And so that sense of privacy and I mean, the mental health care act does say we have to con the aspect of consenting to care, treatment and rehabilitation, but also respect human dignity and privacy. I had, I had, one has a right to their privacy. Being in a state hospital doesn't make you uh, uh, lose your rights to privacy and confidentiality. And those things were definitely not there. So it was a, journey, a very painful journey of, you know, Letting, letting go of the pain, but a lot of therapy, psychotherapy was important. I had conversations with my, with my psychiatrist who was incredible and remains incredible. My psychologist where I, I got that space to vent and cry it out and talk and 
have a mature way of approaching the trauma because it was a traumatic experience uh, by all means. It was very traumatic. So that was a very important um, support structure for me and my family, of course, and friends, but seeking the professional assistance and having that safety net has been critical in me being well enough to tell the tale. Well done, firstly. And I think also as an apology on behalf of those who may never have an opportunity to apologize to you and to anybody who's lived through these types of experiences, you know. Um, and thank you for, for having the courage to turn around and be an agent and an advocate for more than just healthcare professionals who struggle, but people in general who find themselves in these contexts and in many ways lose their voice, as you've alluded to, because of this. And I want to use what you said at the end, you know, around support structures to pivot our conversation around, you know, the ordinary healthcare worker who is still if we, if we use the term from our first episode, languishing, you know, really struggling with where they are in their mind, not yet fully excited about life, but not yet diagnosable as per the definition and speak to some of the strategies that they can employ to support themselves. I think this is definitely not new to the season where we've explored what it looks like to support yourself, but there's some information we've come across that we think is really valuable to speak to and to unpack that can support you. So there's this interesting article, if any of you are interested, it is published by a platform called Frontiers in Public Health. And it's really about public mental health. And the article was written in May 2021 and is titled Prioritizing the Mental Health and Wellbeing of Healthcare Workers, an Urgent Global Public Health Priority. One of the authors is Professor Christopher Hrobla, who is a psychiatrist in our country. And it's a really excellent paper that features many faculties across the world. So uh, Harvard School of Medicine, the United Kingdom Global Health Population School of Public Health, the University of Pretoria, so shout out to the UP kids, well done there. <laughs> and the Committee for Health Education in Copenhagen. And they really just got all these excellent authors together to start to think about strategically what does it look like to support healthcare workers who are chronically vulnerable to mental health issues just because of the type of work that they do and now more so in COVID uh, with stress and burnout. Before we unpack those issues, because you still are in practice, Dr. Mulva, can you tell us about your mental health regimen during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, early in that time when you found out what was happening and then when you were navigating challenges of PPE, what did it look like for you to make sure you don't deteriorate from your baseline function? You know, Loretto, the thing that was protective, I'd say, is that I was still on an incapacity leave because of my illness. So for a good six wow. months, for a good six months, I was not on the front line because of the fact that I had had a severe uh, relapse to right. that extent. But I obviously returned to the front line and, you know, having to address the anxieties of patients and my own, getting back to that, I think one of the biggest things is um, that sense of needing to switch off and have a clear boundary for the various environments so that I come back as my best to the patients. So I come home and I make time for myself. Even if it means I go to the nearest, but I usually, my regimen or ritual rather is that from work, I drive to the coffee shop by my place. And I'll just engage because I've been there for, I've been coming to the same coffee shop for several years. So I'll sit there and I love writing. So I usually write articles. It's something that's an outlet for me. I reflect on our journey as doctors as well. So I write about that and it's been very therapeutic to take the stress 
and use it in a manner that's cathartic and healing. So mm. writing for me has been very therapeutic and sharing about the journey of my colleagues and myself and what it feels like, especially when there was the riots as well, what it feels like to arrive at the work environment. Now you scared that the protesters might come to where you're working. And then right. you also have to deal with the fear of COVID and patients have come all the way from wherever they've come from. So I relate, I, I relate about that. So what, that was one of the most overwhelming times, I think, in the journey because there was the front line, then there was the riots as well. And I just thought, oh my mm-hmm. goodness, so many expectations of society on us. Mm-hmm. And I remember just going to the coffee shop and just sitting there and just writing away and reflecting on it. So reflecting is very important to me. I journal a lot. I write a lot. I connect and also, I love hiking. Anything that puts me outside of an environment that's not pressured, I gravitate towards those spaces. I wouldn't mind a spa day. So things that are just mm, unplug. Yeah, unplugging goes a very long way. So I make sure to be in environments that are calmer and peaceful and not having expectations and demands so that I'm, I'm rejuvenated and replenished enough to return and be my best. I love what you're alluding to because I remember a time last year, obviously I'm not on the front line, so I'm not going to equate it. But I think mental health has been a a, a struggle of people during this time uh, that's been exaggerated because of COVID-19. And I love what you alluded to about, you know, making sure that the outlet is also calm. And for me, I define that as making sure I have time to not be needed. Uh, because I think mm. for a lot of people, that's actually the compounding pressure is that you're needed at work, then you're needed at home, then you're needed by your kids. Mm. So trying to cultivate, and for the most part, that's also what rest looks like for me, is not being needed, but maybe being in positions where I need. That's why I enjoy going out or for a meal or going to the spa because the, the intent is quite clear. My need mm. is quite clear. And I know that I'm going there to have my needs addressed. So I think that's, mm. that's important that you highlighted also healthy behaviors we can employ to release. Yes. Especially for those people who are not yet comfortable with the idea of seeking psychotherapy or psychological support for, for reasons, yes. or they've tried countless times and they're not finding a perfect fit. Just knowing that, you know, finding moments of solitude and calm and expressing it or releasing it in a healthy manner, not yes. indulging in excessive alcohol abuse or substance abuse um, can also serve you in the long run. So I love that you highlighted that. Thank you for telling your story. Yes. If, 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 you know, so do you want to ask something? Go ahead if you do. (laughs) Yes. So I wanted to comment about the fact that, you know, escapism is like healthy pursuits of escapism. And oftentimes we want to escape the environment we're in. So it's like, what do we escape to? What escape do we go for? And it has to be something that's conducive and useful and meaningful that we won't later regret 48 hours later or 24 hours later. So yeah, I was just speaking to that. 100%. I mean, in this article that we were referencing earlier, they speak to the idea of self-care being the first line of defense for your mental Mm. health. And I mean, we've seen um, it being a, a social cultural phenomenon that's evolved over time. But it wasn't until I read this article that I was like, wow, psychiatrists across the world feel like this is how you can implore defense 
for protecting your mental health. And they give a lot of beautiful examples, many of which you alluded to as well. But going, being in the outdoors, spending time with family. And I think it's always important to learn that self-care rhythms and methods can change also because things change, resources change, Mm. time pressures change, relationships change, but always making an intent to figure out what it looks like to have a good self-care routine now is important. I may use myself as an example. So there are, when I'm really, really stressed and I'm very tired, yes, going to the spa is fine. But then there are times when I feel like it's actually just sleep. Like I probably need to sleep for 11 hours to restore and recover and being being aware of yourself to that regard where you know what it looks like to fulfill that need so that the escapism works. Otherwise then you do what what what's called like revenge bedtime procrastination where you Netflix mm. until at night after work because Mm-mm. that's the best time you can get that's the only time you can get to yourself. Uh which then puts you in an awkward sleep cycle, then you're tired and then and then <laughs> You know, it's so interesting you say that as you're speaking, I'm just brought to mind the word permission. It's giving ourselves that permission to do that, to sleep the 11 hours, you know, (laughs) because we often, often as clinicians, we don't give ourselves the permission to rest. Mm. The word, the the, the key word in in medicine or amongst clinicians is to be busy. It's glamorized. Being busy is just glamorized Mm. and rest is often frowned upon. So it's to give ourselves that permission to do the things that, you know, re- rejuvenate us and replenish us. You know, I'm reminded of a story that I think Randy told in season two of a senior registrar at the time when she was still an early, early registrar who had noted that he was called in to cover clinic for an afternoon, but was preparing for his finals. And he said he wouldn't do it. And she had messaged him on the side just to find out, like, why did he say no? And he said, no, because I've assessed the situation. And I can see that even though they want the extra hands, this is a manageable clinic for the numbers that they do have. And I did commit and express that I need this time to study. And she was so moved by the fact that he'd given himself permission in the context of his work, right? By wow. defining his his boundaries. So I, I would That's also... Powerful. Um, that is right because it's scary, right? And you brave. Don't be the best and very brave. <laughs> but very I, but brave. I, it comes with that self assurance, self awareness. But I mean, if he had expressed it, then then he doesn't have to violate his own personal boundary because he knows what the consequences will be. And I mean, in the clinical context, it's definitely difficult. Obviously, in an emergency, you can't say no. But I would also challenge us to figure out what our boundaries are and what our self-care rhythms are in the workplace. Obviously, you might not be able to engage activities of self-care at work, but what are the things that make it difficult to create rhythms, whether it's around your colleagues, around the way you communicate, effectively or ineffectively you communicate what your needs are from your context and I think the more we have the courage to express to bring vulnerability to the workplace the more we'll Mm. design a workplace we want to work in and that's really my heart for anybody who's listening to this podcast is to see that they have a bright future in healthcare but it may be a future they're going to have to work hard to build by building themselves and building their peers and building their colleagues and maybe even the systems that they need and and that helps me segue into some practical, like organizational or structural tools that we've always wanted to allude to in the season, but never have really had a chance. And I think this is important because if Precious mm. was here, she would say, you know, 
we mustn't ignore that there there are real systematic issues causing the problems that we experience on a day-to-day as healthcare workers. And ignoring them is is not helpful. They also contribute. And so, yes, we can have the self-care as the first line of defense, but what are the preventative measures that can exist in a context to make things better? Maybe before I dig into them, do you believe you've ever experienced a context where preventative measures were successfully executed? And that doesn't have to be clinical. It can be just from the broader experiences that you've had in your life and in your reach as you service other areas. I definitely have, you know, I've had very amazing experiences and difficult experiences. One thing I'm grateful for is that through my journey related to my career in, in, in as being a doctor, I've been fortunate that the people I've disclosed my illness to have been very supportive in that regard. I didn't feel alienated. I didn't feel spaces as well that you can discuss, have these conversations. You can't, I could not have possibly declared at every place on a volume speaker and say, hi, I have bipolar. That would have been disastrous for me (laughs) because not everyone understands the same. (laughs) So I'm grateful that the people I disclosed it to early on have been very supportive and it's been very important in terms of my journey and how I perceive healthcare that oftentimes we point out the wrong that's been done, but there are support structures that are provided Mm -hmm. that actually make it conducive to us thriving. And I think having that understanding has been very important. But also, sadly, um, I recall being admitted to hospital. Uh, I had had a relapse and I was booked off work for the 21-day admission. I think most many people know in the private sector that it's the 21-day admission uh, because that's the limit that medical aid gives. You know, it's 21 days. You might be sick for longer, but 21 days is what you've granted. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So I recall, you know, that I think I mentioned it, you know, in our previous conversation with you, me and myself and V, when yes. somebody called me while, while I was, um, in the hospital, um, because I mean, you do, you still have your phone depending, because it was a voluntary admission, the particular one I had. Right. And they send a text, how are you keeping? Oh, I'm very well. Thanks. Thank you for checking. Oh, I just wanted to find out when are you coming back because we're doing the call roster. And I thought sometimes we just don't have the empathy for each other. And, the thing mm. is, I was fortunate that the the consultant that I was reporting to at the time was well aware of those rights, was well aware yeah. of the fact that according to human resource, I do have a right to that leave. So it's not like I had absconded in any way. So there's been very yes. positive experiences, experiences, but also some difficult ones. But I think the contrasting experiences doesn't make me bitter towards the field. It's just, it's just a, an awareness that not everybody un- understands and empathizes in the same way. Yes, I love that. And I love that you highlighted that there are empathetic leaders. I think uh, the message Mm. we don't want to come across from this season is that leaders aren't doing enough. I think it's so hard to be a leader and it's so hard to lead contexts where you haven't seen what you need. And for the most part, anybody who's in a leadership role, and I would, I would dare to say it's anybody who's a doctor, (laughs) but Mm. we know specifically the registrars, specifically the consultants, the HODs, many of them are facing a healthcare ecosystem. They never imagined they want to work in and the pressure to, to be solutionizer in that context, the pressure to be supporter is hard and, Equally, if there are no mental health support structures for us, there might be very little to none for them. So just a shout out to those leaders who have done well and who have done their absolute best to make sure people are supported. But that's, as you said, you know, helps us speak about some of the 
the opportunities or the ways in which this amazing article highlights preventative measures can be introduced in healthcare contexts to support healthcare workers. So I'm just going to list a few of them and we can talk to them, like psychological first aid during crisis, you know, and this is the idea that when there is a crisis situation, people have access to psychotherapy and support, either in groups or individually, to support them about that particular episode. And I mean, granted, for our context, it can be very difficult because the pressure doesn't stop. You could have a, I mean, you could have three deaths on a call <laughs> and the next morning you need to account for how it happened and why. But one way to think about supporting that is introducing psychotherapy. And I wanted, I wanted also to allude to this incredible story I recently learned about from Tiger Book Hospital that during the COVID-19 pandemic, they used a robot called the Quentin Bot. I think she's got a new name now to try and facilitate calling and assisting healthcare, I mean, families rather, for those patients who were in ICU. So it was wow. a critical care setting. But I think the same principle could be applied to supporting healthcare workers. You know, oftentimes the resources that you need might not be in your particular hospital, but we can definitely use technology to get the reach we need. And maybe you know of a psychiatrist or psychologist who's removed from your day-to-day context, who you're familiar with, who would be willing to extend some support to a group of you a couple of times a week. And I think it's going to need and require all of us to be a little bit more innovative about how we design the support structures we need, because we know they don't exist in in perfection. And I don't think that's could be the ultimate goal. But maybe we can think about ways to support ourselves and our in our context so that uh, we don't have to be the brand. And then also there's just having a psychologist or a therapist for yourself, which if Precious says, she would say, it's just like the way the pick it up truck comes to pick up the dirt every week. <laughs> this mm. is your opportunity to make sure you clean up everything that you've harbored, everything that you've <laughs> filled, empty it out and have those channels. And I mean, for different people, it will be different things, but definitely have an outlet and like you alluded to, Dr. Ngobo, for you, sometimes that's writing and mm. just designing that for yourself. So that was the one that they spoke to. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. Mm. No, I think it's so powerful to have support groups and be a part of them. So I, I you know, that the, the, the first aid and saying have a psychologist who's a part of that journey, I think it's so important. It would be actually mm. a very valuable thing to have. There's power in support groups because uh, vulnerability connects us. Uh, braving to be vulnerable. Imagine a team that will meet, even if it's once or twice a month or once in two weeks or once a week at some point and discuss the difficulties, discuss, not just discussing it from statistics of what went wrong, but right. from the feeling aspect, the hard aspect of it to say, oh, what a tough week, how to debrief. That's the, what I'm trying to find. It would mm. be so much more conducive because there's power in feeling connected and saying that we're in this together. We share in the same struggle. The struggle might not go away, but you're right. not carrying it alone because oftentimes we suffer in secret alone and mm. feel like we're the only ones going through a certain point. But if we actually even reflect on a Friday and say, you, this week was very tough. That goes a very mm. long way. Just that acknowledgement of the struggle, I think is very helpful. So the reality is that things might not change overnight. We're not trying to create an utopia. There's still going to be things no. happening, but there are yes. things that can still be started that don't have to be so complicated and or a dream or idealistic for 10 years time or 20 years time or one day mm. or people perceiving it to be too dreamy. It can still happen, but it's just about 
those small changes go a very long way. It's just to check in with each other, be it working in the same ward. Guys, let us just meet and do a cup of coffee. Even if it's a, like a cafeteria, if the schedule is too tight, let's do coffee every fortnight after work. Let's just chill and chat and reflect on the week gone by. That doesn't require too much admin, I would say, other than the person who might be on call on a particular day. But to say, let's go to the cafeteria. It doesn't have to be, to be complicated or we bring something and let's just all debrief as a team. It doesn't have to be something too complicated. I love it. I also was thinking as you're talking, like, I don't know if this is a real thing, but like meme therapy, laughter can sometimes also really be such a strong aid in helping you just, you know, see the woods from the trees and just remember that you're still here. You're still doing an amazing job. Things are really hard, but you are doing really well. And the work that you do really matters and you're doing the best mm. that you know how, and it's enough. And I think just also centering yourself around those principles is really helpful. So maybe to tackle the next one, which is one that I really, really enjoy. So the, there were a few listed. So the one was mental health recovery through support programs, which I think we've both alluded to. And then there's mm. this idea of the World Health Organization Sorry, I think I opened one of the programs. <laughs> the World Health Organization Self-Help Plus. I just want to read the description because I think this is incredible. And this is a resource that they reference in the article. It says Self-Help Plus, Self-Help Plus, which is in brackets SH Plus, is whose five-session stress management course for large groups of up to 30 people. It is delivered by supervised non-specialist facilitators who complete a short training course and use pre-recorded audio and illustrated guides doing what matters in times of stress to teach stress management skills. The course is suitable for adults who experience stress, whether they live wherever they live and whatever their circumstances. It's been shown to reduce psychological distress and prevent the onset of mental disorders. The format of SH Plus makes it well-suited for use alongside other mental health interventions as a first step in a stepped care program or as a community intervention delivered alongside broader community programming. And when I heard about this, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You incredible. Know, imagine. It's incredible. Imagine if possible, you know, once a month, instead of the M&M, people just sit in on a session. It'll take a team five months to go through. But then at least, you know, as a leader, if you're listening, you know, you've done what you can to equip them with a really world-renowned resource. And it says that you don't need like some expert facilitator. You could equip yourself, someone else on the team could equip themselves to make sure that you guys have at least equipped people to manage and navigate stress and, and agree on ways to do it that serve the team. So I absolutely love this. I actually want to try it out for myself. Wow. It <laughs> sounds incredible. What, it makes two of us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think those are the little things that can be done. Cause like you said, for so many people, it just feels so far fetched to try and fix yes. anything in South African healthcare. And I think it's granted and fair because you can't be fixing people and the healthcare system at the same time. Like people might feel like they need to pick a struggle, but the reality, mm is I think that is what it looks like to to be a doctor in the healthcare context and unfortunately that's not the dream we were sold is that we mm. we have to heal more than people's bodies we have to be equipped to heal systems and I think the most important system to heal is the internal one which is why the whole season we've emphasized you know and tried to work to empower you to identify and use emotion words to better to be more aware of that internal system. But once you've strengthened that internal system, 
you need to sure. then empower the next. Sure. I'm so touched by the word internal system. I think I love it because it's so empowering. It takes one out of that victim state and feel they can do something because we become so despondent by seeing what is mm. so wrong at so many levels in, in, in the health sector that we just feel mm. so despondent and you know, just doing what just is expected. So we move from being the starry-eyed child wants to be the best doctor in the world and country and you just it becomes a job. You do the expected and it becomes a job and it's a very sad state of affairs. But to say that to change your internal environment, it's so empowering and it gives so much hope and also it's feasible. It makes it far more yes. feasible than saying you want to change the whole system. But if you realize yes. that, no, it can start with just me, then it's just something that gives hope. So I just had to just interject there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we need to remember that systems are not buildings, systems are people. So when you do pursue your personal attempt of changing your internal system, you are changing the system. You absolutely are, because that means one more person showing up differently. And the more all of us pursue that ambition, the more we'll have a different system. So I think it's so important to highlight the power of one. You know, there's that like starfish story. I forgot what it is, but the moral of the story is like somebody walking on the beach and seeing thousands of starfish. And the person he's walking with is like, why are you throwing that starfish back in the water, there's so many more. And the point is it makes a difference to that one starfish. And I think mm. the same can be said here is, yes, there's a big healthcare system to fix, but you choosing to focus on you and trying to get, you know, put the oxygen on your mask, put the oxygen mask on your face first as they would if a plane was crashing, mm. that, that saves your life. And so navigating and learning and introspecting and reflecting on what, what is wrong in your internal system, how to fix it, getting the resources you need makes a difference to you. And when when you change things around, you start to change as well because what you see is different. So definitely, definitely want to encourage people to pursue that. That was the goal of the season. So I hope we've encouraged you to do that. Dr. Momo, any parting thoughts? I think we've done well to sort of share resources. I mean, there are the things mm. that, that we highlighted last time and I don't want to minimize them as well. So guys, remember, there's the Static Helpline, there's Lifeline, there's Sisters for Mental Health, which is Dr. Momo's platform, there's Frontline Refuge, which is um, Precious's platform, there's Healthcare Workers Care Network, um, and I believe they're doing some work with SADAG recently that in, t- in the form of webinars and and sessions or live like psychology sessions that you can attend. So there's definitely a lot out there. There's the Discovery Young Doctors Mental Health Helpline. There's also the Healthy Company for Doctors, which is like an app-based platform where you can track your mood and make sure that you're flagged when you have any mental health issues. So there's a lot, but yeah. Don't forget to engage it. That's the most important part and to get, engage what works for you. So from you, just about any parting thoughts and then maybe just um, you can let us know as we close the episode how you have been kind to yourself this week. Oh, wow. So um, I just want to also note Lifeline is also fantastic as well. One of the resources that we can yes. use as well. But my parting shots, I think you've summarized it so beautifully. I don't want to just add too much to what you said about the internal... <laughs> no about the internal environment, I think it goes a long way to say that let us, you know, look after ourselves and empower ourselves mm. despite what's happening around us because mm. without each and every one of us, then the system collapses anyway. And for me, I think it's so important to 
tune into things that caught, that feed your soul and inspire you to return mm. a better doctor, a better clinician. And to return to that is about returning to yourself, actually. So calmer mm. environments to replenish and then is to look after ourselves so that we have better clinicians, but also to realize that we are people before anything else. We are human beings and there's so much power in the connection that's there. There's so much community as well. You know, to say Mm. with the medical community, let us actually apply the fact that let's have a communal spirit to know that we're not alone in what we're going through. And such platforms, Mm. Dr. Kakli, are so powerful with this podcast of Becoming Healers because whoever's listening to us now is realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one going through this. There are other clinicians Mm. going through the same thing. And that sense, that feeling is so empowering. So it's to say that let us continue conversing, let us continue connecting Mm. because it's the only way we will take things to a next level in a positive manner because the last thing we want to be is a despondent health practitioner uh, resentful of the system and then you just do the basic the expected and then you go home where it's so remote to you that you you lose that connectivity so it's been such a pleasure and in terms of my self-care this week the weather right now is thundering <laughs> it is raining so i'm likely going to it's take picking a very up on deep my audio nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm going to take a very deep nap but oh, nice. um, i'm just going to be uh, in the nursery uh, at the nursery where there's plants in the garden and I'm going nice. to be, there's a lovely spot that I love. It's so quaint where you have breakfast with a friend on Sunday. And yeah, that's basically me. And then just visit a friend in the afternoon. So just things that are calm and, and, and nice. feed my spirit. And for you? Oh, awesome. I just want to say I love the relationship theme. So taking care of yourself through relationship is so important. Mm. For me, being kind to myself this week has looked like forgiving myself. I think similarly to, you know, the journey you had to take with you moving through the healthcare system, forgiving myself is, is one of those keywords. Oh, sorry. I meant similarly to your, you using that keyword of permission. Another keyword mm. for me is definitely forgiveness and forgiving myself first. Forgiving myself for maybe not performing uh, and completing days the way I want to, finishing to-do lists the way I want to, that definitely eases the pressure and make sure I clean out the expectation of my, like the negative expectations or the perfectionistic expectations out of my tank mm. daily so that I can continue the next day recharged with vitality, ready to give a good effort. So for, for me, because of the pressure that this week took on it's been you know being able to reflect and say i have done well and maybe i forgive myself for setting too the, setting the bar too high let's pick it up tomorrow mm. and one of the major hacks that you mentioned just in closing is the fact that you know having boundaries to say where do you start where do you end it's also knowing that that yeah. if i know i've done my best it's okay and i can give myself that permission to do whatever else that feeds my soul because i know i've done my best so it's that that element of having a boundary about environments that I'm in, but also that boundary to myself that just being kind to myself is also so important and attending to my self-care and setting the boundary of I'm all things to every other people, to every other person. There may be something to myself that's also meaningful uh, on a daily basis. And that looks different on different days. Mm. That's so true. Sorry, you make it like this is a conversation on its own. (laughs) You make me think (laughs) of a a phrase that I use, which... I love dearly. And I think what I'm hearing you say is the reality is rest is not a reward. I'm so Mm. glad like exam season is coming near an end because I think that's where we see a lot of ourselves losing our boundaries because 
or just pursuing the goal of the test or writing or whatever it is. But you know, without you, there won't be the goal to pursue anyway. So rest is mm. not a reward. It's so necessary to maintain your vitality, your energy, your life force, which is what you need to mm. become everything you desire anyway. So I hope you guys have the courage to do something kind for yourself, something that ministers to your being, your soul, and helps mm. you move through this this life and through your days just a little bit easier. And if you haven't heard it today, you're doing so well, and we are so proud of you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye.